I'd like to begin this evening with a, a word of appreciation, uh, not only on my behalf, but I think on behalf of all of us who've been able to gather together in these almost ideal conditions and, and have this kind of a retreat, this kind of a, uh, opportunity to reflect on our own situation and the wider implications of Buddhist teachings. I just think it's we've had a wonderful opportunity here and I'm grateful and I know I'm not the only one grateful for all the people at Gaia House who've made it possible. We know that an awful lot of people have worked very hard in all kinds of ways to create this environment and to keep it going, to sustain it. And uh, I'm very grateful for that. The topic for this evening is Buddhism and ecology. And the question is whether Buddhism really has something special to offer us that that can help us understand and respond to the eco-crisis at this very special time in history when we seem to be doing so much to, uh, to damage the biosphere. It's not at all clear that a religion is what's called for here. Uh, I mean, we have scientists, they're the ones who tell us about what's going on. And we have technologists who uh, devise new technologies that we need to adapt to the crisis. And we have politicians who at least should be changing the social structure to adapt to our new situation. Uh, So what's the role of something like Buddhism here? Essentially, uh, an, an Iron Age religion, right? So the Buddha lived in a very different time and place. Uh, India, at least 2,400 years ago. Like his compatriots, he didn't know anything about climate change, global warming, melting glaciers, rising sea levels, carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere, methane deposits, and so forth. For that matter, they didn't know anything about carbon or oxygen or calcium or any of the periodic table of the elements. They didn't know about the genetic structure of life. They didn't know about the cellular structure of life. So many other things that we today take for granted and are essential, of course, to our understanding of what's happening right now to the biosphere. So we can certainly wonder whether Buddhism might have something really valuable to contribute. Of course, Buddhism, I mean, one response we might say, Buddhism is, is not just one, one religion, although I'm, I'm always talking in generalities, but when you really look closely at it, Buddhism is a big tent that includes a lot of different types of Buddhism. And so you would expect within all of these types of Buddhism, right? Pali Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, etc., etc. You would expect to be some things that would have something to say about our situation. Um, And there is one story that especially speaks to me. It has to do with the Buddha's relationship to trees, According to the Pali Canon, uh, 
or let's say the, the story of the Buddha, the life story of the Buddha, which we know is largely myth. But according to that story, uh, the Buddha was born under trees when his mother went into labor uh, prematurely as she was traveling. Uh, after he left home on his spiritual quest, the Buddha studied practiced, did ascetic practices under trees. Later he meditated under trees. Supposedly, he had his great awakening under a Bodhi tree. Thereafter, he often lived, taught, slept under trees. And again, if we can accept the traditional story, he died between two trees. So he had kind of a special something going there. Uh, And in particular... There's a story in the Vinaya about a tree spirit who appeared to the Buddha in one of his dreams and complained that one of the bhikkhu monks had cut down its tree in order to make a hut. And now the tree spirit had nowhere to live. I don't know what to think about the tree spirit, but interestingly, the next morning, the Buddha called the Sangha together, and he made a new rule. He said, bhikkhus and bhikkhunis are not allowed to cut down trees. Not only that, they're not allowed even to hack off branches of living trees or even pluck a green leaf from a tree. That's kind of a nice story. It gives me a good feeling But I admit, it doesn't take us very far when it comes to understanding and addressing the climate crisis. So we can still wonder, where does Buddhism fit in here? And what I want to do is suggest to you that there is, in fact, a precise and I think profound parallel between what Buddhism says about our individual predicament in the way that we've been talking about it this week, and our collective predicament in relationship to the biosphere. Yesterday, I talked quite a bit about collective selves. Uh, I mentioned, for example, the the collective... So that David Loy isn't only David Loy, he's a man, not a woman. Uh, I'm American, not British, right? And so forth. Um... In this case, the interesting collective self is the largest possible one, you might say. It's the human species. It's human civilization in relationship to the rest of the biosphere. And the question is, how can we understand that duality? How can we understand that relationship? So again, what I want to suggest to you then is that the eco-crisis is every bit as much a spiritual crisis as a, te- as a technological or an economic or a political one. And of course, many people refer to this and say this, but I'd like to try to put a little bit more flesh on this claim and go into it in some detail. Does this mean, therefore, that there might also be some, solu- uh, some parallel between the two solutions? Does the Buddhist solution to our individual predicament therefore imply something important about the collective solution? Well, I'll try to say something about that toward the end of the talk. 
Okay, here I'm going to ask Jenny to pass out a little, um, what would we call it? Chart? No. Hmm? Handout. Great. Let's just call it a handout. Yes, please. Maybe somebody can help you or... Um, There's two sides to it, so you can do me a favor by folding the two so that you only see the left-hand side. Let's try that just for a moment. Let's just look at the left-hand side. And if you look at those six points, I think you'll see that basically that's what I've been trying to talk about this week, right? You've been forgotten. Thank you. So just looking at the left-hand side for the moment. Let's go through it quickly, and I think you'll see that this is really what we've certainly been spending our time on, the claim that we can understand anatta today as in more contemporary terms, that our sense of self is a psychological and social construct. And the problem with the construct is that it involves a sense of separation, right? The construction of a sense of self that's separate and inside is also the construction of that which is outside, an objective external world. And that this involves anxiety because... This supposed self inside can never secure itself because there's nothing there, really. Because it has no reality separate from the whole. It's simply, as I've been saying, it's one of the ways in which the whole comes together. And anxiety, therefore, that includes, and maybe I haven't said very much about this, but it includes confusion, naturally, about who I am and what my life is about as a separate person. So we talked... Uh, two nights ago about some of the ways in which we try to ground ourselves in response to this anxiety of separation. Hmm? Ways that often make things worse. So I talked a little bit about money, fame, romantic love. We could have said as much about the desire for power. Hmm? The irony so often is that by trying to secure myself in this way, I so often make things worse because... um, the things I do, the kind of manipulations I might have to play, you know, deceiving people or at least using them as means to the ends, has the long-term effect, of course, of increasing the sense of separation, alienation. In response, Buddhism doesn't say that we have to get rid of the self. That's not possible because there never was a self. But we can wake up, that is to say, we can see through the delusion of a separate self. And this awakening in Buddhism liberates us and empowers us. And I think one of the things it naturally does, because it radically reduces our own self-preoccupation, our own uh, narcissism, because we know that we're not separate from other people, then naturally there's a lot of different ways we can respond. But it's going to be a way that wants to help other people. I mean, we can find various ways to do that according to 
our own temperament and our situation, but in general it's going to be something along that line. So that's, basically we've spent enough or maybe too much time talking about that left side. What I think is extraordinary is that this Buddhist account of our individual predicament corresponds so precisely to our collective ecological predicament, which is on the right side, and now we can open it up. If this parallel is true, then the following must also be true. Human civilization is also a construct, just like the personal sense of self. It's a construct that's led to a collective sense of separation or alienation from the natural world, in this case, an alienation that causes collective anxiety, an anxiety that includes uncertainty about the role of humanity. What does it mean to be a human being? What's, what's the meaning of civilization? Where are we going? Do we have a goal? Is there a meaning to it? I mean, Christians a thousand years ago thought so. What do we think now? In response, we try to ground ourselves in ways that make our situation worse. Just as if we become preoccupied, say, with money, that can often make our situation worse by aggravating, aggravating the alienation. So I think that we respond in ways that aggravate our alienation, our collective alienation from the earth. The solution is not to return to nature. We can't return to nature for the simple reason that we've never left it. Just like we can't get rid of the self because there's never been a self. But we do need to awaken and realize our non-duality with the biosphere and what that implies. And finally, this realization can collectively free and empower us to heal the biosphere. This realization can resolve our collective existential or spiritual problem about what it means to be human. With us, the biosphere becomes self-conscious. And our role today, pretty clearly, has to be to heal it, to heal the biosphere and to heal that sense of bifurcation between us and the biosphere. So let me just go ahead. Basically, the talk is... Most of the talk is just going to be going through these one by one. But let me start with two favorite quotations, just set the stage. One of them is by Thich Nhat Hanh, a favorite of mine and many people, who said, quote, We are here to overcome the illusion of our separateness. We are here to overcome the illusion of our separateness. And the second one is from the great... 13th century Japanese Zen master Dogen, who said, let me read it so I get it right. I came to realize clearly that mind is no other than mountains and rivers and the great wide earth, the sun and the moon and the stars. The first claim that human civilization is something constructed by us is both the most obvious, I think, and yet also the most significant in some ways. 
I mean, we're so familiar. We, we know this. We're familiar with revolutions, reform movements. We know about legislatures that can pass laws. In other words, if we're not happy with the kind of society we have, we have governments that can reconstruct it. Nevertheless, this claim that human civilization is a social construct, this claim is not something that most ancient societies would have understood. The West, we in the West, in the modern West today, we owe this insight to classical Greece, which as far as I know, was the first civilization to distinguish between what they called phusis and nomos. That is, phusis is basically the natural world, all the patterns, what goes on in nature. And nomos is human convention or social convention, which includes the nature of human society. It was the Greeks who really realized this distinction and along with it proceeded to reform their society. And we trace back Greece as one of the roots of, West, of the evolution of the West because they had this insight and they started the process of self-transformation that we have since continued. So the Greeks realized that unlike the natural world, whatever is social convention, it, it can be reconstructed. And in that way we can try to, or at least attempt to, determine our own destiny. I'm sure that many of you at one time or other read Plato in school, Plato's Republic. What's Plato doing in the Republic? He's basically offering a very complex blueprint for a new society. Now, we today, we're familiar with such blueprints. We have lots of blueprints. We take that for granted. But I think he was doing something really radical up to then, that he could offer that, that that was a possibility. When we study the Republic, we're reading something that was really quite revolutionary for its time. In other words, today it's difficult for us to understand, because we take this for granted, that traditional societies didn't realize the distinction between nature and society. Because they didn't have our sense of historical development, and therefore they didn't have also our sense about future possibilities, maybe being quite different than what's now. Most ancient societies accepted their own social conventions as inevitable, as just as, ine- just as natural as their ecosystems, you see. In other words, rulers might be overthrown, but the ruler who overthrew would take his natural place at the top of the social pyramid, which was also a religious pyramid. Hmm? Kings usually had a special role to play in relating to the gods, the forces that controlled human destiny, the transcendent powers that supervised the created world. In fact, often... In these kinds of ancient societies, human beings had a very special role to play in actually keeping the cosmos going. If you think, for example, about the Aztecs and the kind of massive sacrifice, human sacrifice they had, where they tore the hearts out of their victims and offered them to the sun god. Why? because that was necessary to keep the sun on its course throughout the heavens. If human beings stopped doing that, things would fall apart. We'd have chaos. Likewise, the Mesopotamians, they believe that 
we human beings had been created by the gods as their slaves to serve them, to provide the gods with what they needed, that we had that function within the cosmos. In short, for these societies, the distinctions that we now take for granted between the natural world, between the social order, and between religion didn't exist. Why is that important? Well, uh, of course, understanding one's own society as natural justified social arrangements that we today wouldn't tolerate, right? I mean, none of us would want to live, uh, I think, in an Aztec society or an ancient Mesopotamian one. But there was nevertheless some big advantage that they had over us, a psychological benefit in thinking the way that they did. And it's this. People in such cultures share and take for granted a collective sense of meaning, the meaning of their lives in the cosmos that we today do not have, that we've lost. For them... It's not only that their society and their religion is built into the cosmos, the meaning of their lives is built into the cosmos and revealed by their religion, which for them, again, they don't think of it as a religion, that's simply an explanation, an account of the way things are, right? For us, in contrast, and I think this is the important point, the meaning of our lives and the meaning of our societies has become something that we have to determine for ourselves in a universe whose meaning, if any, is no longer obvious. Even if we choose to be religious, we have to choose between so many different possibilities, don't we? Which, in other words, tends to reduce the kind of natural security, natural comfort that comes from growing up within a religion and just accepting that, taking it for granted. So although we enjoy many freedoms that such ancient societies didn't provide, and we certainly wouldn't want to give them up, one of the important prices of our freedom, this freedom, is that we have lost their kind of social security. That is to say, the basic psychological comfort that comes from knowing your place and role in society, and not only in society, but in the cosmos. Do you see? In other words, part of that rich cultural legacy of the Greeks, for better and worse, has been an increasing anxiety about who we are and what it means to be human. That's what goes along with the freedom to reconstruct our societies. That's what goes along with seeing the distinction between the natural world and social convention. Yes, we're free, to change things around. But then it's not natural in that same way. Loss or reduction of faith in God has left us rudderless, collectively as well as individual, as well as individually. Thanks to our modern technologies, it seems like we can do almost anything that we want to do. And yet, the more we can do that, the less it seems that we know what we should do, what we want to do what our role is, we don't know. What sort of world do we want to live in? What kind of society do we want to have? 
if we can't depend on God or God-like rulers to tell us, we're thrown back on ourselves. And the lack of any grounding greater than ourselves is, in this sense, another profound source of dukkha, collectively as well as individually. To sum up, our modern sense of separation from the natural world has become, I think, we can see it as an ongoing, as, as associated with an ongoing source of alienation and frustration because we don't know who we are, we don't know what the meaning of our lives is or the meaning of human civilization. Do you see the parallel? Basically, what I've just talked about is points one through three on the right side of the handout. So number four, what's been our response to this predicament? Well, let's remember first, let's go back to the individual, the personal predicament, and remember how we respond to that, right? I try to make my anxious sense of self inside more real, more comfortable, often by becoming attached or preoccupied with things in the outside world, such as money, but no matter how much of them I may acquire, right? no matter how much money I might get, I never seem to have enough because it doesn't allay that basic anxiety. That's not the real issue. Money is not the real issue there if it's sense of lack. The sense of lack stemming from the inherent insecurity of the constructed sense of self. So you can say that believing that something outside myself is the solution to my sense of lack. That's the fundamental delusion. Solutions that just reinforce the basic problem, the sense of separation. We've been through that, okay, enough times. Sorry for beating a dead horse here. But here's the question. Is there a collective parallel to these personal, individual sorts of compulsions or um, preoccupations? And I think as soon as we ask the question this way, the answer becomes apparent. I think it's our obsession with never-ending progress and growth. What motivates our attitude toward economic and technological development? When will our gross national product be large enough? When will we collectively consume enough? When will we have all the technology we need? And why are those such strange questions? Because we can't conceive of... It's the nature of all of those enterprises that we can't conceive of an endpoint, right? Which suggests maybe it's not that we're trying to reach somewhere, but maybe we're running away from something. Why is more always better if it can never be enough? I'm going to say that again because I like that. I like the way that sounds. Why is more always better if it can never be enough? 
My point is that technology and economic growth in themselves cannot resolve the basic human problem about what it means for us to be human. I mean, more resources may be a very good means to accomplish something, but they cannot answer the problem as ends in themselves. They're not good as ends in themselves. But since we're not sure how else to solve the problem, in effect, they have become a collective substitute. You could say forms of secular salvation that we seek but never quite attain. The means have become de facto ends. Does that make any sense? Because we don't know what to value, we're preoccupied. Since we don't really know where we should go in our secular society or what we should value, we have become demonically obsessed, I would say, with ever-increasing power and control. Please notice the parallel with our individual predicament. Lacking the security that comes from knowing our place and role in the cosmos, we have been trying, vainly, unsuccessfully, to create our own security, collectively, as well as with the personal predicament. Modern technology in particular, I think, has become our collective attempt to fully control the conditions of our existence on this planet. You could say, in effect, we've been trying to remold the earth so that it's completely adapted to our purposes until everything becomes subject to our will, a kind of resource, until all this becomes resources. Resources meaning something we can use. This is despite the fact, or maybe because of the fact, that we don't know what those purposes should be. Ironically, if predictably, this hasn't given us, this hasn't provided the sense of security and meaning that we seek. In the modern world, we've become more anxious, more confused, not less. Now, if these parallels are valid, if they're an accurate description of our collective situation, I think we can see that something like the ecological crisis is going to be inevitable. Sooner or later, and it seems to be now, we're going to bump up against the limits of this compulsive project of endless growth and never enough control. And if our increasing reliance on technology as the solution to these problems is actually a symptom of the larger problem, that seems to imply that the, techno- that the ecological crisis, it requires something more than just a technological response. That's not to say that technological responses aren't necessary. Right? We know we need, for example, more efficient fuel cells. But the problem is that increasingly, increasing dependence on ever more sophisticated technologies ever more powerful technologies, can still aggravate further our sense of separation and alienation from the natural world. Whereas it seems to me that any successful solution, if the parallel holds, has to involve recognizing that we're an integral part of the natural world.
That also means embracing our responsibility for the welfare of the whole natural world, the biosphere. Because ultimately, of course, its own well-being cannot be differentiated from our own well-being. Because the rest of the biosphere is our body. And I mean that literally. It's not just a metaphor. It's a body, right? Remember that piece of paper, the Thich Nhat Hanh, the cloud in the piece of paper, right? Well, the rainforest is in, is in our bloodstream, for example. Understood properly, then, humanity's taking care of the Earth's rainforest and so forth it's like me taking care of my own leg. So what does this mean? Does it mean returning to nature? That would be like getting rid of the self, something neither possible nor desirable. We can't return to nature. Why? Because we have never left it. Right? We are very good at creating environments for ourselves, like this one, where... We kind of see our own image reflected back in us. You look here, and we created our own, our own environment, right? Our own space. Beautiful, beautiful room. Uh, very well done in many ways. And so we're here. We don't think about the forests or the oceans or what's going on elsewhere. But you don't have to think very hard to realize that everything here in this room, including our own bodies, is not just derived from nature, but it is a way of nature taking form, right? I mean, the wood, obviously, from trees, you know, the carpet, maybe it's from wool, or a lot of things are from uh, oil, plastics, metal, ored from the earth. Everything here is nature. It's just nature reformed, nature restructured. But it's not as though we've created a world separate from nature, The environment isn't merely an environment, that is to say, it's not merely the place where we happen to be located. The biosphere is the ground from which and within which we arise. So the earth isn't only our home, it's our mother. And you could say, in this case, the relationship is even closer because we can never really cut the umbilical cord. We don't cut the umbilical cord. I mean, people have fantasies about terraforming Mars or something. But, I mean, basically, as long as we're on this planet, as long as we're part of this biosphere, think of the air, the water, the food that circulates through us. We take it in our mouths, it's digested, it comes out the other end. That circulation is part of the great circulation of the natural world. It's not separate from that. It's just one microcosm of the macrocosm. We're never, we've never been separate from the natural world. It's just that we've had the illusion that we can somehow sustain ourselves, just as we can have the illusion on the individual level that I have a separate self inside. So according to this understanding, the problem that we have is not our technologies that are destroying the earth. Rather, I think it's the obsessive ways that we have been motivated to 
exploit the earth. You know, it's not just the technologies themselves, it's our attitude toward the earth. Without these motivations, I think it would be possible to evaluate and use our technologies in a more beneficial sense because we could really discriminate more clearly between the ecological solutions that they can actually contribute to as well as the problems that they have created. Recently, one example, for example, is nuclear power. Um, and this is, it's interesting that in response to the disaster in Japan, we've had a big propaganda campaign on the part of nuclear power uh, companies who, they were just gearing up, you know, just gearing up to get going full blast again. People had forgotten Chernobyl. And I'm, I feel almost sorry for them. Just when they're starting to get developed, this thing happens and people... And so they've, they've, you know, a lot of people are spending a lot of time and money to persuade us that, well, what happened in Japan can't really happen here in Europe or in the U.S. because our reactors are different. The irony, by the way, is that when I was in Japan for, 15, for 20 years, um, there was a nuclear movement that was arguing how crazy nuclear power was in a country like Japan with so many uh, earthquakes and the argument was always, oh, don't worry, you know, what happened in Chernobyl could never happen here because we have different types of nuclear power plants. Uh, personally, I mean, I understand that I can see the attraction of nuclear power. If you need large amounts of power and oil and gas because of carbon and old coal are very bad, I can see the tendency to want to move to nuclear. But I'm still struck by what I think it was Amory Lovin said, uh, using nuclear power to create electricity is like uh, using a chainsaw to cut butter. And I still notice that the people who argue for nuclear power, the argument is almost always, well, it's better than coal. But I haven't seen anyone really come up with the answer to the fact that it creates waste products. I mean, even if nothing goes wrong, even if there is no disaster, and there are always disasters. I used to have a book, a Greenpeace book, that listed every nuclear accident, and there were hundreds of pages. Each page had several incidents. I mean, there's always things going wrong. We're human, right? They're going to go wrong. But even if they go right, what you end up with a nuclear power plant is you're going to end up with tons and tons and tons of radioactive material that's radioactive for many, many thousands of years. And I'm just astonished that we don't seem so concerned about that. You know, you know, most of our CEOs can't think any further than the next quarterly report. Or our presidents can't think of anything further than the next election. And we're willing to create these incredibly toxic, dangerous radioactive materials that are going to be dangerous to all living systems for tens of thousands of years. And we don't seem to be bothered by that. I can understand the argument if you need lots of energy, maybe nuclear is the best way to go in the minds of some people because it's better than the carbon fuels. But I'd like to suggest a different solution. The problem is that we keep assuming the necessity for continuous economic and technological expansion. 
that we, you know, we're thinking, okay, we have this much energy that we're using and we need more, more and more energy because we're making more and more stuff. And how are we going to find a way to make all that energy if we don't have fossil fuels? But if we didn't assume that kind of economy that has to grow if it's not, collab- if it's not to collapse, if we had a different kind of economic system that was more steady state and more frugal, then maybe we wouldn't need such a huge source of energy. Maybe one of the things that we would be able to do is reduce our energy needs. In other words, what I'm suggesting is that we reverse our way of thinking. And I want to offer a very simple, if not easy, solution to our energy problems. Right? Instead of asking the question, how can we get all the energy we need? I propose that we turn it around and, and we determine how much energy we can get from renewable resources like uh, fuel cells, solar, wind, etc. And then on the basis of that, on the basis of the energy that's available, that we consider restructuring our societies. Does that make sense? Did I say that very clearly? I mean, it, it seems to me sooner or later that's what we're going to end up doing anyway, whether it's by choice or not. Doesn't that seem kind of commonsensical? Am I the only one who's ever thought about that? I mean, I, uh, I have to stress it's simple but not easy because, of course, it's not going to be easy at all. It, revol- it re- requires pretty basic changes in governance and so forth, but uh, I expect it's going to be necessary. Okay. Are you with me so far? Is it? Am I persuaded you about the parallels? There's still one big question left, and that's what I want to finish talking about. How does this kind of approach that I'm offering, how does this understanding resolve that basic anxiety that I was talking about at the beginning, right? Remember the Aztecs, for example, they were part of the world and uh, they, the meaning of their lives was as natural, structured into the cosmos. Now, we're not going to be able to return to that even if we wanted to, right? So how do we resolve the basic anxiety that haunts us now where we have to create our own meaning, we have to find our own meaning in a world where God has died, in a secular world? Like it or not, our individual and collective self-consciousness today, our historical development, if you will, distances us from those kind of pre-ancient or those ancient worldviews and the kind of natural meaning of life that they had. And we wouldn't want to return to those even if we could, really. But the question is, what other kinds of alternatives are available for us? And I think this is really to ask, what kind of collective parallel might correspond to the individual awakening that Buddhism promotes, that Buddhism in principle leads to, right? Thich Nhat Hanh has said, quote, the Buddha attained individual awakening. Now we need a collective enlightenment to stop the course of destruction. 
But what can that mean? And what I want to do, I want to conclude with a few reflections on that. And I wonder if the important issue here is evolution. How we understand evolution. It's very interesting. Lots of religions have problems with evolution because they have their own creation myths. But it's very interesting. Buddhism has no problem whatsoever, really. In fact, the whole concept of evolution fits in perfectly with basic Buddhist ideas about impermanence, about lack of substantial identity, a constant transformation, interdependence, and so forth. It seems to me that if religions are to remain relevant today, they are going to need to stop denying or ignoring or minimizing evolution and in fact turn it around. I think we need a religion that makes the evolutionary process central to its teachings. And what religion adds is religion can add questions about the meaning of that process, which scientists sometimes think that they answer themselves, but I think that that's a big delusion on their part. They don't necessarily know what's going on. They can tell us what's going on. They don't really understand the process, I think, understand the meaning of it. Okay, according to Brian Swim, a cosmologist, the greatest scientific discovery of all time is that if you leave hydrogen gas alone, if you just have some hydrogen gas and you leave it alone for about 14 billion years, plus or minus a few hundred thousand, it turns into, quote, giraffes, rose bushes, and humans. <laughs> Is that also one of the most important spiritual discoveries of all time? In fact, it seems to me, well, I guess it's hard to say, it seems to me 14 billion years is actually a very short period of time to evolve from the hydrogen gas. Actually, it's, you know, we're thinking about the Big Bang, right? That's first plasma, and then it turns into hydrogen. But 14 billion years from the Big Bang and the plasma to create, for that hydrogen to be transformed and to create a Buddha, a Jesus, an Einstein, a Gandhi. That's a very short period of time. At least I know my 63 years have gone very quickly. (laughs) Unless, of course, a very short period of time to go from plasma to a Buddha or plasma to an Einstein. Unless, of course, hydrogen gas is actually something maybe a little bit different than the reductionistic way that it's usually understood. And of course, that's the issue here. What we normally think of as evolution, right, genetic evolution, biological evolution, actually, that's only one part of a triple evolution. And I suggest that we need to look at the whole arc and see all three evolutions as part of one big evolutionary developmental curve, right? What's the first evolution? Well, 
at the time of the Big Bang, what do you have? You have plasma and then you have basically hydrogen. That's the first element that's formed. But then how do you get all the other elements that we know about? Well, they have to develop, they have to evolve in a sense. They have to develop where? In the cores of stars. So stars, what you have is after a long time, the cloud of hydrogen gathers and then it condenses. And when it gets a certain density, then you get nuclear fusion. And what's going on in the very core of the stars, of course, is that it's starting to fuse the hydrogen into heavier elements. You start getting uh, helium and uh, I, I forget the order. But that's where the heavier elements are created. So that's the first evolutionary process. And I remember reading somewhere, I think it was uh, Carl Sagan's Cosmos, that um, the normal star can only fuse elements up to gold. It can't, gold is too difficult. In order for gold and the higher elements to be fused and created, you need supernovas that are so big and so powerful. And they're big and powerful enough that they can fuse all the higher elements. But then what has to happen is they, these stars have to explode and scatter all these higher, heavier elements around, right? So that's the first stage of evolution. And then over time, this is a wonderful story, I think. I mean, it's incredible. Think about it. And it's our story. We're talking about our bodies here. And then uh, after time, okay, then you get these, seven, these secondary solar systems forming. And so now we not only have uh, hydrogen, we've also got, on Earth, we've got all these heavier elements. And it just so happens they're the elements that we need for life, or at least life learns to depend on the ones that are here, right? So you get calcium, um, well, CO2, carbon, oxygen, uh, and, and, and so forth. And then, because you have all these higher elements, heavier elements, then you have the possibility of uh, life, uh, and self-replicating life where um, some of these elements somehow work. You get amino acids and DNA and things and you actually you have something that can replicate itself. And then you get this incredible, well, we all know the story, the Darwinian story about the evolution of life on Earth. But even that is only the secondary evolution. We cannot minimize the third evolution, which is what? Cultural evolution, of course. I mean, there's still a big way, there's still a big development, although comparatively fast now, but there's still a big development between, say, the first human beings, wherever you want to draw that line, and an Einstein. There, and, you know, you're not going to have an Einstein unless you've got the evolution of an incredibly sophisticated culture, civilization, which is, which is what we have, which is what we've which is what we're part of, which is what created all of us as well as Einstein. Right? And these are nested. If you think about these three developmental processes, right? The, uh, the first one creates the conditions necessary for the second one, and the second one creates the conditions necessary for the third one. And, you know, we know human beings, our species depends on many other species Still. Okay, here's the question. How are we to understand this whole sweep of 14 billion years? What's going on here? Is there a meaning to it? Well, 
theists, a lot of people who believe in God, right? They say that there's a being outside these processes that's directing it. In contrast with that, you'll find a lot of scientists who say, well, this is basically a kind of haphazard, accidental process, uh, including the evolution of life due to you know, random DNA mutations. The question is, is there a third alternative? According to the evolutionary biologist Theodore Dobzhansky, he says, evolution is neither random nor determined, but creative. That's his word, creative. Of what? Well, obviously, in, in one sense, the, the, the tendency toward increasing complexity is hard to overlook, and also the fact that that increasing complexity seems to be associated with some kind of greater awareness. And from a Buddhist perspective, this opens up, I think, very interesting possibilities. And here's the important question, I think. Can we understand this groping self-organization of the universe, this whole sweep, as the universe struggling to become more self-aware or groping in its own way toward awareness? Is my desire to awaken, remembering that the word Buddha means the awakened, is my desire to awaken supposedly the desire of this separate sense of self that doesn't really exist? Is my desire to awaken from the other side the urge of the cosmos to become aware of itself in me, as me? Is this the answer to that old question, if there is no self, who becomes awakened? Please put this in the context of what we were saying yesterday about Indra's net and the piece of paper. You know? How everything comes together in a certain way to create the piece of paper and us. Brian Sweeney, sorry, Brian Swim and Thomas Berry, they wrote a wonderful book in this direction uh, called The Universe Story, which I recommend highly. And they make this kind of claim, quote, the mind that searches for contact with the Milky Way is the very mind of the Milky Way galaxy itself in search of its own inner depths. What does this imply, for example, about Walt Whitman maybe admiring a beautiful sunset? Quote, Walt Whitman is a space the Milky Way fashioned to feel its own grandeur. Isn't that nice? Think about our eye. Think about the evolution of the eye. Right? Isn't the eye something that the, bio, the whole biosphere has evolved in order to see itself? Rather than thinking of me as something behind the eye, looking out at the world. What different perspective do we have on the eye if we think of it as just like Thich Nhat Hanh's piece of paper. Mm-hmm. 
Is this how Buddhist enlightenment can be understood today? What did Shakyamuni Buddha realize when he looked up? According to one Mahayana tradition, his, when he, he had his enlightenment when he looked up from his meditations and he saw the morning star, Venus, shining brightly in the star, brightly in the sky. And he, then he said something like, I now realize that all beings have the Buddha nature. But there's another, there, there's another phrase that's sometimes said that and I think I've mentioned this already, that when, when the Buddha became enlightened, the whole universe became enlightened. All of us became enlightened. And how did Dogen describe his own awakening? Quote, I came to realize clearly that mind is no other than mountains and rivers and the great wide earth, the sun and the moon and the stars. But there's a problem, as we know. And here we go back to the problem. Every species can be looked upon as a kind of experiment of the biosphere. And scientists tell us, biologists, that less than 1% of all the species that have ever evolved on Earth still exist. It's like over 99% have evolved and then disappeared. What's special about our species is that our supersized cortex enables us to become co-creators. And here I'm thinking about that famous phrase from the Bible where we're told that humans are created in the image of God. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Does that mean God has two eyes and uh, one nose? Or is it the case that somehow... See, what I'm thinking of, I think God is this kind of creative principle, the self-organizing, creating principle. And what's unique about human beings is that with us, new types of creativity become possible. If God wanted to create a symphony... He needs us. He's got to work through us, right? And there's a lot of things he's got to do, or, or it's got to do, or she's got to do, whatever, uh, to create a symphony. Think about it. But there's a new kind of creativity that's become possible. It's like with, with human evolution, with cultural evolution, the creative possibilities sort of explode exponentially, right? We not only have symphonies, we have incredible things. With us, new types of species become possible that we co-create. Again, made in the image of God. Knives. Wouldn't be any knives without us. Cities. Poetry. And world wars. Cathedrals and concentration camps. Symphonies, as I said, and nuclear bombs. As some of these examples suggest, there does seem to be a problem 
with our hyper-rationality cortex. Nietzsche has his Zarathustra saying that, quote, man is a rope across an abyss. I think we can put that in gender-neutral language. Human being, the human species is a rope across an abyss. The implication I get out of that is that we're a transitional species, that there, or that there's something incomplete about us? Must we evolve further in order to survive at all? There's a book by Michael Dowd called Thank God for Evolution. I love the title. It's a pretty good book, too. And in that book, he describes our collective problem as, quote, systemic sin. That's the Christian word, right? And he says, quote, The fundamental immaturity of the human species at this time is that our systems of governance and economics not only permit but actually encourage subsets of the whole to benefit at the expense of the whole. Our systems encourage subsets of the whole, and he actually gives the example, individuals and corporations, to benefit at the expense of the whole. Is that where we're stuck? Because those subsets think of themselves as separate from the whole? Again, we come back to this sense of separation that's so problematical. Again, we bump into the delusion of separate selves that pursue their own benefit, their own self-interest at the cost of the greater whole that they're actually part of. So what I'm suggesting is perhaps figures like the Buddha and Gandhi, maybe we can look upon them as prototypes, harbingers of the way in which our species needs to develop. What do you think? If that's true, then, I think that the kind of cultural evolution or the evolutionary development that's most necessary now, then, I think we can see it, involves spiritual practices that address this fiction of a separate self, that help us overcome the fiction of a separate self, whose well-being is separate from, from other people. I can't remember if I mentioned this before, but I'm really struck this realization in the last couple of years how plastic the brain is and how it changes and how when we are meditating, the brain is changing. The brain is restructuring, rewiring itself. I'm just amazed by that and I, I, I almost can't help but thinking of it as like a fourth kind of evolutionary process that there's a, at this point in our cultural evolution, we have got to the point where we realize that in order to survive, we don't just need genetic DNA mutations of a certain sort, but we can contribute to the process by doing nothing, getting out of the way, as it were, and this whole transformation, this evolutionary Development continues when we're on our cushion. That's the way it seems to me.
Perhaps our basic problem isn't self-love, but a real deep misunderstanding of what the self really is. I think it's becoming very clear that without the compassion that arises when we realize our non-duality, that is to say, empathy not only with other human beings, but with the whole of the biosphere, I think it's coming more and more likely that civilization as we know it is not going to survive the next few centuries. Nor would it deserve to. And I think it remains to be seen whether the Homo sapiens species experiment will be a successful vehicle for this evolutionary process. Maybe it won't. Maybe we'll be like the other 99% who have their day and then disappear. But it'd be kind of a shame. I mean, it seems like there's that possibility and it depends on us, you know. But then I always remember that in one way it's really strange to think of ourselves, as, as we always do, as separate from the natural world. We are literally an experiment to the biosphere. So if the experiment goes wrong, it's the biosphere that tried something that didn't work. But it does feel as if we're being told now, grow up or get out of the way. That's the feeling I have. And not only me. Okay, to conclude. Does all this give us a different perspective on our collective relationship with the biosphere? Is the eco-crisis a spiritual challenge that calls upon us to realize our non-duality with the earth? It's very interesting at this particular point in history where you remember the first night, the coming together of these two worldviews and the, the Buddhist emphasis on personal transformation, the Western one on social transformation, the new possibilities that happen when they come together. It's very interesting that this occurs at the time of urgent eco-crisis. And I think more than that. I think it's more than eco-crisis. It's social, economic crisis as well. Very interesting. Is it just a coincidence? So what I'm doing is, to conclude, I think all this suggests a final parallel between the individual and the collective. And the question is, Will our species become the collective bodhisattva of the biosphere? Isn't today humanity, isn't humanity challenged today to discover the meaning and the role it seeks in what I think is going to have to be the ongoing long-term task of repairing the rupture between us and Mother Earth? In other words, repairing what we've done to the biosphere. It seems to me that's going to be, isn't that the meaning that's given to us at this point in history of what it means for us collectively? And that process, that healing, one suspects, will therefore transform us as a civilization as much as the rest of the biosphere.
What do you think? Oh, I realize I forgot one nice quote by Thomas Berry, who's been one of the major figures in this whole evolutionary perspective. We might summarize our present human situation by the simple statement, in the 20th century, the glory of the human has become the desolation of the earth. And now, the desolation of the earth is becoming the destiny of the human. Ouch. Anybody? Please. Uh, one question you wrote, and I'm thinking about the when, as you call it, bound and unbound. Uh, would you say now, in, in regard to this subject, that actually this unbound awareness you're speaking about is exactly the key to realize this connection? Sort of the natural way of. Mm. Um, that's an interesting question the the issue of awareness is pretty complicated I mean that that way of expressing it is pretty complicated in itself and I haven't usually sort of developed it in relationship to this Um, the article starts with some quotations, including a very famous one from the Sixth Patriarch's Platform Sutra. No, I'm sorry, the Diamond Sutra. The Diamond Sutra. Uh, it's sometimes translated, this, this line. Uh, let, your mind arise, let your mind arise without fixing it anywhere. So it, it, it's the tendency of awareness to, to stick and I think we can understand that in the context of, of what I was saying earlier about we're always looking for security, that our awareness is looking for security, which is, the, which is you know, we're trying to secure the sense of self. It's the nature of awareness that it's looking for security. It's looking for something to grasp onto. And yet that's the problem. Awareness... Awareness isn't aware uh, that, that in and of itself it, it, it doesn't need to do that. And, and the liberation of awareness is the realization that the mind doesn't need to stick. Uh, it it kind of goes back to the heart searcher. You know that famous saying, form is emptiness, emptiness is form? You know, for a long time I kind of puzzled over that. Because I was saying, oh, you, you kind of look for the emptiness that takes form as things. Uh, but of course the real emptiness is the emptiness of our own minds it's the nature of our own minds that you could say our own awareness the nature of our own awareness or our own consciousness it has no qualities in and of itself and that's why it can become anything that's why it can take any form 
whether I can relate that to evolution right now. I'm, I'm going to have to think more about that, to be honest. It's a very interesting question. Did you want to try yourself? Did you want to? Well, was there some I connection? I it like this, you know, that actually by sort of not letting our awareness be unbound, we hinder evolution in the sense you were talking about it now. So that we are actually always in the way of evolution by creating a self which mm-hmm. is not there. Mm-hmm. So awareness gets stuck. And like, for example, I, I was suggesting maybe in meditation, there's a kind of transformation going on in the brain. And we know this is physically true. So that's because the awareness isn't sticking at something. There's, there's, there's a kind of a, of a open quality to it. That, and then, in and of itself, there's a kind of transformation going on. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. One and two. Yes, ma'am. Right, a kind of insecurity. Structure, I just wanted to add one other thing. Please. There's also something that Dave Denton brings up, a famous naturalist, at a conference last year, which he said that the problem is not about climate change, but the problem is population growth, which figures in an ecological sense, but that just, you know, the way that people are reacting and responding to climate change. When you bring in a subject like population growth, that's even, how do you even begin to kind of discuss subject like that? And your way of framing the kind of energy turning on its head can really see that unless you get to a point where you really have to limit the population, then people are not going to kind of want to respond. It's a kind of... And what politician is going to run on the platform of I'm going to restrict? Uh, I mean, it's it's that may be the toughest one of all in a democratic society, right? And yet, obviously, there are too many people. Just our impact on the biosphere is inevitably too great. Even if we're all going to have sort of the minimal basic levels of, of good subsistence, it's still enormously impacting. Yes, thank you for that. And scary, because how does one get a grip on that? Unless you have a world dictator, or, you know. And because it's that balance of it's obviously a human need, but also built in things about security, and there's the family and community, and then people thinking having children is going to some kind of insurance in the long run to look after them when they're old, that kind of thing. So back, originally, the desire for lots of kids was a really important survival mechanism for the survival of our species, and now, ironically, it's also leading to the ex- possible extinction or rapid reduction of our species. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Um, different. I was uh, one, I read a book about called The Wayward Mind by Guy Claxton, which is all about the unconscious mind, or what's sometimes described as the unconscious mind. And I'm wondering, well, apparently, that matters of the mind is unconscious. I'm wondering how that fits in with what you were saying with, um, with meditation. In fact. When you let go of all this stuff, it's the unconscious. 
Well, I think I, I think the question. I mean, one question is how you understand the unconscious. Yes. I mean, yes. you know, for some people like Freud, it's a kind of grab bag of yes. nasty little things. For Jung, it has a lot more positive sense of, of something more archetypal and uh, and religious even. Uh, there's just the idea that there's a lot more going on in the brain than what's going on consciously, apparently. Buddhism has a concept of unconscious too in the uh, Yogacara. You know, it's talking about different mm-hmm. awarenesses and it talks about the seed the, the seed repository in the Alaya Vinyana where uh, uh, the sort of the seeds of karma or you could say the seeds of uh, past habitualized patterns of thinking and acting are somehow stored uh, so but in that case it's it's uh, I think it's more negative in terms of the seeds. You have to, the idea is to roast the seeds to get rid of the seeds because they're problematical. Yeah. I don't know what else to say about the unconscious. Well, it's often that, like Einstein, apparently, it, it was from there that his genius popped up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In that sense, yes, that the, the unconscious as. If our practice is about sort of getting the ego self out of the way, then it's allowing you know something deeper to manifest or some something. Uh, I mean, I'm reminded of what the sixth patriarch said about how you know he didn't have anything to teach; it was just taking away. He just found where people were stuck, where his students were stuck, where their minds were stuck. He would do things, say things that would help them let go. And it wasn't as though he had any doctrine or anything to give them. It wasn't about transmission of mind, but it was simply getting stuff out of the way so mm-hmm. something something could manifest. Mm-hmm. Jenny? I was blown away by that. It was really exciting. There's been a program on TV here called That's what I'm trying to suggest too. Yeah. Right, right. But but that and, and it's interesting how that ties in with the Buddhist shift. You know, the need to overcome the sense of separation, like in terms of Thich Nhat Hanh's piece of paper last night and and the Indra's net. All of that makes sense. You know, you see how everything isn't everything else. You know, it's not just some vague concept, but you can see how evolution works in terms of in terms of everything being interdependent. And it's a beautiful story. But as long as we have this sense of separate self that's kind of separate from it, then somehow we tend to distort it. Uh, and, and 
we're not comfortable with that. One thing Brian Cox talked about, we think our sound eventually will become supernova because it's bound and, and all these heavy elements will be created and then there'll be another and more life will evolve. And in some ways I felt that was kind of strangely comforting, although it might not be my consciousness that you know every atom in our body will be some other life form. Will be recycled. Yes. Is there also a tragic side to it? Um, the Beethoven symphonies will be lost. I mean, I, uh, and, and our individuality too. I mean, it, it does seem to me that none of this denies the kind of tragic element that, as an individual, you know, David Loy will die, and the people he loves, uh, he'll lose them, etc., etc. I mean, there is that side. It's not. I mean, it's not negligible. Buddhism is helping us beyond that, but there's the two sides to it as well. Yes? Mm. Em. Uh, I don't want, um, I don't want it to, to become a big a good debate or anything, but um, uh, could you speak up there, man? Sorry. Yeah. Um, I, I have... Um, the question of population control is like um, uh, it, it's an issue that I really it makes me it makes me feel quite angry, um, which I should deal with sooner. But um, uh, it's so it's such a red herring, I think, and it's one of those things where um, where 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 I've often found so many different. Um, Movements looking at ecology and climate change um, that, that you know some I've been part of have just fallen flat. Um, in the past, there have been so many examples: the famine in Ireland, um, you know, years of issues in India and stuff. Where the problem hasn't been too many people, the problem has been capitalism, and the problem has been the control of resources, and that continues today. Like it's it's it's. And, it, and and it's really a dangerous red herring because because like like you just said you know sort of in jest that you know you end up with this the logical conclusion is authoritarianism and that's really dangerous and so that's kind of why I spoke though I don't I just think it's a really important thing to consider that the the, the reality of the um, you know all of these massive catastrophes if we don't you know, if in, in the process either it, it could well be total annihilation and maybe we'll become a new sun or something, but in that process we could easily end up kind of um, bowing down to like some of the things that we talked about yesterday or whatever. But I think it is really it's a really it's a really big problem. It's a problem that anyone who considers themselves to be an environmentalist needs to really consider. Thank, thank you for that. Yes, she, Sheila's been... Uh, did you want to respond to that? or uh, could, could, could I say just one thing briefly first then? I mean, I think that's a very important argument, but I actually agree with both. In other words, um, I agree that so often population is, is used, it ends up rationalizing the present, you know, it's like the people who already have a great deal and don't want to share, they'll say the real problem is population as a way of diverting attention from the maldistribution of resources in our civilization. And I accept that argument, but nonetheless, I also believe that 
you know, six, six billion human beings on this biosphere is a very big load that has enormous consequences for all of the other ecosystems. And my sense from talking to other biologists is that it's, it, it's really a problem. You know, we, we, can, we can do it, but not without really having sort of not without using so much of the Earth's resources that it actually creates problems for a lot of the other species. So in a way, I, I agree with your main concern, but I, I nonetheless still suspect that there are still too many people. And I, I also admit I don't have any good argument to how we deal with that problem. At least not in the short... I mean, there's lots of issues about population control. When you educate women, for example... They're likely to have. I mean, there are there are those things that that seems to be the way to go. But uh, my own sense is still that population is a very serious issue and a growing one. Without denying your your concern that it's so easily used as a red herring to distract from you know a, a very growing gap between rich and poor. Sheila, sorry. That's a very grim picture, notwithstanding the um, the inspiring um, portrayal of the different stages of evolution. Um, I don't know that it's that grim, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I kind of am having a deja vu at the moment. I feel as if I'm in a Catholic church in the late 60s. <laughs> one of those missions where the priest who doesn't normally be there comes along to tell you how bad you are and how bad the situation is and, you know, you better watch out. And, you know, I was a, a teenager then and I was scared. I'm not scared now, but I, I you know, I just, I don't, if, if, if you believe, if we believe, and we do, as you say, that, you know, we are part of nature, so we are. Now, our awareness of that is another thing, but we are. Mm-hmm. So that implies something hugely powerful. And, and I believe that awareness is coming to people. You know, I, I spoke the other night about the banking crisis in Ireland and, you know, how me and my... There's a genuine feeling around the country that everything, as one academic put it, everything is now out on the table. There's nothing else to hide. Um, and, and, you know, the Americans say that they don't believe in China, but they do believe in what's happened to the planet. And that they're not in denial, they're just lying. They're lying for political reasons. One of these days they'll have to stop lying. But, you know, it's, they do believe it. And so I just, I don't see it as that grim. We haven't come to the end yet. We don't know what's you know what? What the power of uh, what the power of us in the world is to, to unleash? Yeah. I just don't find it. I don't want it to be that grim, and I don't. I actually genuinely don't believe it is that grim. I mean, things are factually, statistically, the way they are, but I don't necessarily think that the outcome is as you painted. When, when you say that things are very grim. Or, or, sorry, when you say that things aren't that grim, do you mean that the, the situation that the climate scientists are telling us about the levels of carbon no, and, the, and the consequences? Sorry? That's as grim as they say it is. So 
but you think because of our response and I think and the our fact that is more than what what is being portrayed. I think our response is many and varied throughout the world in all sorts of different large and small ways. Things are happening in response. Yeah, I think they are responding. I think they are too. Whether whether they're enough, I don't know, but yeah, I think they are happening. Sorry, some other people trying to get in here. Yes, in the back. Somebody else wanted to. Uh, somebody else had their hand up. Uh, see, Ali, and then um, Ratna Chuda in the back. Yeah. You'll have to talk very loud for people to be here behind you here. Reframe that 
his famous teaching to Anguli Marla. Can recall the teaching he gave Anguli Marla? Can you call it? Well, he, the Speaking of reframing, what Buddhism says about shunyata, right? Like if you and there's, it, it's understood, it, it, it's presented at least in, in different ways in different Buddhist traditions. But for example, Nagarjuna understands it simply as a, a kind of a shorthand term for the absence of being, the absence of sabava, self-being in things. It's a way to deny that things have any self-being, but. Can we understand svabhava, this emptiness, more dynamically? Is it another way to understand that kind of fundamental creative principle that Dobzhansky was talking about? Is that is that the fundamental principle of... Is that the emptiness that's always taking form, taking new forms, transforming... Not not taking new form out of nothing. It, it it's dependent on the previous evolutionary possibilities that are available there. But it's it's not bound. It's 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 it, it it's it's always creative. It's always taking new form. And looking at the time and the fact that we're we're limited now, the the question I'd like to leave you with is. Going back to your point about uh, mind bound and unbound, <clears throat> this fundamental creative principle that Dobzhansky talks about and the nature of our own minds, as in the Diamond Sutra, let your mind arise without fixing it anywhere because your mind in and of itself has no qualities. In and of, it, it, it can take any form. 
is it the same thing? Is that the creative principle? Is it the same creative principle that existed at the time of the Big Bang and the kind of transformations that took place with the Big Bang and then all the evolutionary developments I was talking about? Is that the same creative principle that is the very nature of our own minds? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.